to read the first verse of chapter 3. So let's uh, look at this passage from God's Word together. I remind you that it is God's Word. Um, Ultimately, it's not Hosea's Word. It's not my Word, certainly. It's it's God's Word. Um, And as is true with every other portion of God's Word, it's given to God's people because God loves His people. And he doesn't want his people to be in darkness. So he speaks. So hear the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Just a notation, this is... um, the same period of time in which Amos conducted his ministry. Amos was a little before Hosea. Hosea is an approximate contemporary of Amos, so we're in the same period in Israelite history. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel, In the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned in no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, Not My People, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. In Hosea 3, verse 1, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Let's pray together. Lord, help us as we look at this uh, word of yours. Please grant us your spirit. You've given us your word. We acknowledge again. We, We simply say to you again, we understand we need not only your word, but we need your spirit. Without your spirit, this is just so much noise. 
So be gracious to us and grant us your spirit so that we might understand and believe and receive the benefit that you intend from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you can summarize uh, Amos with the simple phrase, Amos presents God as the roaring lion, the lion who roars, the roaring lion, then you can uh, perhaps see Hosea as presenting God, presenting the Lord as the relentless lover. The roaring lion on the one hand, we talked about the fact that God is not someone to be trifled with. He is the Holy One of Israel. But if there's anything that emerges from Hosea, it is this image of God that he is a relentless lover. Even in our judgment, if you think about it, an indiscreet lover, an indiscreet lover, a relentless lover, an indiscreet lover. As we said, the prophecy of Hosea is contemporary with the prophecy of Amos. If you've read Hosea, if you did your homework, as I encouraged you to do last week, what you see here is a love story. Uh, but it's a remarkable love story. Maybe some of you have seen the movie, or maybe you've even read the tome, Les Miserables. You know, you know the story of Jean Valjean and Cosette, a criminal and, in effect, a prostitute. Well, this love story, while perhaps in some sense embodied in that love story, not that Jean Valjean and Cosette were ever lovers in that sense, still portray something of what this story is all about. The relentless love, not of a criminal, but of the Holy One of Israel. Loving not one who just kind of got a bad hand dealt to her. <laughs> the roll of the dice didn't turn up 7-Eleven for her, however dice works. No, a very different kind of love story between the Holy One of Israel and, and an adulteress. The, the language of Hosea 1 is actually, it's shocking. Um, this book is really kind of tough to read, and frankly, it's sort of tough to talk about in public because this language that is used is very, very graphic language. Three times in the passage we read, the word whoredom is used in in Hosea 3.1, the word adulterous is used. Two different words. The first of them is just profoundly graphic. It's describing exactly how God perceives Israel, exactly how God sees Israel, and exactly what Israel is in the eyes of God. A whore. That's the word. That's the language. You know, the sequence of things is that God 
loves one who is unlovely and weds this one to himself, that is Israel, and then Israel, who is loved by God and who is wed to God, can't seem to give up her adulteries and turns away from God, the one who has loved her and prostitutes herself with other gods. But then God, who is the relentless lover, goes after her. Just as he commanded Hosea to love a woman of whoredom, who then abandons him and the children that she bore him, he is then commanded to go love her again and win her back, buy her back, love her and adultery. It's a living parable. It's a living parable that Israel is to seek to wrestle with and grapple with and and try to come to terms with and understand. And just as was, was true with Amos, you know, God roars like a lion, but when he roars and when he thunders, it's always out of his love and concern for his people that he might call unto his people that they might return to him. And the same thing is going on in Hosea. So here is this living parable, this graphic parable played out in the life of Hosea with Gomer describing God's relationship to his people Israel. So what's going on here? What do we have portrayed here? Well, it's, it's really two things, basically two things. And the first of them is the love of God. The love of God. Uh, and, and then the second of them is the idolatry of Israel. The love of God and the idolatry of Israel. Now, what is the love of God? I mean... You know, the love of God, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Love of God. Rolls off the tongue. We talk about it all the time. We say love of God, love of God. What is the love of God? I've mentioned this to you before. It's, it's here in verse 1 of chapter 3. God tells Hosea to go again and love a woman, one loved by another man who is an adulteress, even as the Lord Yahweh, Yahweh, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. What is the love of God? What is this all about, this love of God? I've mentioned this to you before, but I want to mention it again. And I, you know, um, I'm in good company when it comes to reminding you of things you already know because. Paul was very happy to remind various churches of things that he had previously taught them. Peter is very happy to remind the readers of his letters of things that he had previously taught. So I'm in good company by reminding you of something that perhaps you've forgotten uh, and need to be reminded of again, and that is this. When we talk about the love of God, when we talk about this characteristic of God, John says in his letter, that God is love. God is love. Now, Isaiah, in seeing his vision 
of God in his glory describes God as holy, 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 the thrice holy. But you know, there's one attribute of God by which God is defined, that attribute being connected to God by the verb to be, to be. This is what God is. God is love. And the thing I've suggested to you previously is this. John is not saying God is loving. He is saying that it is of the essence of God that God is love. There's a difference, you see. To say that God is loving, which he certainly is, is to suggest that God has affection for something outside of himself. But before God has affection for something outside of himself, he loves within himself. Not in that self-absorbed, narcissistic way that you and I love. Not in the way that we want everybody else to love us. Not in the way that we want everybody to see us as the center of the... Not in that sort of way. You read passages carefully through the scriptures. And you begin to get some handles on what this business is. God is love. And this is where the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is so important. That God exists not as a strict singular essence, but as a tri-personal essence. God exists as a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the love of God, before being something expressed outwardly, outside of himself, is something which exists and which is within himself. You think of passages like the passage in the Gospels where the heavens open up at Jesus' baptism and the Father says of the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son. This is the Son of my love in whom I am well pleased. Love involves not only affection for the object of one's love, but it involves delight and pleasure. The Father delights in the Son. The Father sees in the Son an object which is worthy of His love. You, you have some taste of this. You have some feel for this, right? We have some, some friends in town for the weekend who can't stop talking about Ruby. And who's Ruby? Ruby's their granddaughter. They can't stop talking about Ruby. They describe how she responds to music, how her little 13-month-old body starts to move when she hears music. They describe the expressions on her faces. They describe, and of course she's, she's clearly the brightest child ever born in the history of humankind. They describe how bright she is. What is all of that about, right? This little child, which is bone of their bone and flesh of their flesh, is one in whom they delight and in whom they take pleasure. The family really is a father and a mother 
and the extension of the father and the mother, the children, it really is a kind of a pale reflection of what exists in the Godhead. Different essences, you understand, but nevertheless a pale but real reflection of what exists in the Godhead. I remember when when the OBGYN who delivered my oldest daughter Katie handed me to her, handed her to me in the delivery room. That moment is is frozen for me. As I looked down in this at this face, and I was overcome with joy and pleasure and delight. There is love that exists in the Godhead, among the persons of the Godhead, before love is ever expressed out from the Godhead. God is love before God is loving. You understand? And the love which the Father, this is so interesting. Read the Gospels and you'll see it. The love which the Father has for the Son results in the Father desiring that the Son be exalted. It's incredible to me how other-centered the persons of the Godhead are. The Father seeks the glory of the Son. The Son seeks the glory of the Father. And the Holy Spirit, who's just caught up in the beauty of the whole thing, seeks the glory of the Father and the Son. Because of this love that exists among the persons of the Godhead. Now remember, it is the Lord, Hosea 3.1, It is the Lord who loves the children of Israel. And with that name, God is calling back to mind the fact that God is not only loving within himself, but he is loving outside of himself as well. That he has become the covenant God of Israel. That he has made Israel the object of his affection. And here's the thing you've got to understand. I mean, I... I'm not telling you I do. But if we're going to understand the love of God for us, we have to understand that the love of God for you is not different from the love which God has within himself and for himself. If God's love, if the Father's love for his Son is a function of his infinite delight and pleasure in the Son, When that love begins to move outward, it doesn't change and become something different. It doesn't become something less for you than what it is between the Father and the Son. Heard somebody say recently, take the most intensely delightful and intimate experience of love which you have ever known. Multiply it by infinity and spread it across the face of eternity. And you have something that begins to draw you in the direction of the love of God for his people. The most intense experience of intimacy and joy you have ever known. Multiply it by infinity and spread it across the face of eternity, and you begin to touch the magnitude of the love which God has within himself first and which moves out away from him in the direction 
of prostitutes. Not my word. God's word. Not my metaphor. God's metaphor. And I trust you understand. It's not just God's word, not just God's metaphor for Israel in 750 B.C. It's God's metaphor for you and for me. This thing doesn't make me any different. We all. It's not my word. It's God's word. God chose to use it. It's not my metaphor. It's God's choice of metaphor. You and I, we all. We are prostitutes. We are whores. And this love which is infinite and eternal and unchanging, which does not change when it moves from within itself, outside of itself, in the direction of something other than God, this love is the love that God has for you and me. Now, why do we, why do we look like why does God use this word of adulterers and prostitutes? Well, in both, this, both chapter 1, but especially in chapter 3, we understand that adultery, spiritual adultery, whoredom, spiritual whoredom, is moving away from the one who has loved us with this relentless and eternal love in the direction of other gods and in the direction of things that cannot satisfy us. That's what our spiritual adultery is. It is two things, and you see it in verse 1 of chapter 3. They have turned to other gods... And they have loved cakes of raisins rather than me. So what is this spiritual adultery? You know, the bottom line, at a very practical level, idolatry is trusting something that can't help you and loving something that cannot love you back. It is trusting something that cannot help you. And it is loving something that cannot love you back. Just real quickly, look at the things. And I think this is incredibly relevant and practical for us. Look at the things that Israel trusted and loved in place of God who is infinite and eternal and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth, and love. <laughs> Look at chapter 5, verse 13. And Ephraim, by the way, as you read through Hosea, Ephraim is, is the tribal region, the geographic region in which the capital city of Samaria is found. So 
just understand that when Ephraim is being used here, it's being used of that geographic region, but really of the whole of the northern ten tribes as over against Judah. And so here is Ephraim. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, when Ephraim saw his sickness, now you've got to read, I've, I've read Hosea probably a dozen times this last week, just trying to get it in my head. You know, you've got to read it and read it carefully and slowly, but keep reading it to see what's going on. Ephraim has become sick because of her idolatry. Sick. That's the image that's used here. And she knows it. She knows that she's become sick. You know, just because God is the kind of God that God is, because he is a relentless lover, because he is a truth teller, I'm absolutely convinced. I can't give you chapter or verse, chapter and verse. I can just give you the whole of the text of the Bible and suggest that out of the whole of the text of the Bible, you can draw this conclusion. Nobody lives on this planet without God in every single case, making it clear to every single fallen human being that he or she is sick. Somehow, God breaks through the fortress of unbelief and constrains and compels us to acknowledge male or female, young or old, at some point, I'm really sick. I'm broken. I'm destitute. I'm fallen. The question is, what happens when that piece of knowledge, by the grace of God, impacts your consciousness? Here's what happened for Ephraim. Ephraim saw his sickness, Judah his wound, and Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. What did Israel do? Israel saw her destitution, and to what did she revert in this case for a cure? Careful. Political power, political institutions, kings, princes, presidents, Congresses. To what did she look for a solution to her illness? Human government. Look, do we desire good human government? You bet. Do we pray for good human government? Do we pray for justice? Absolutely. God has appointed government for justice and righteousness to prevail in the land. But government is not your Jesus. Government is not your Savior. And Israel was making political institutions, kings and all of their power, a savior. And turned away from the one true king, the one true governor, the one who does have power to heal. What else did Israel do? Chapter 12, verse 8. Israel sought security and even drew the conclusion about herself that she was righteous on the basis of riches. Hosea 12, verse 8. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. 
I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I've been a hardworking, faithful laborer. And because of my hard work and my faithfulness, I have become rich. And my riches become my righteousness. You know, we think the prosperity gospel is a 20th century thing. These folks thought it up in 750 B.C. Those who were rich believed they were rich because God favored them, because they had great faith, because they were righteous, because they, were, they had cloaked themselves in a robe of righteousness, believing that their riches were the indication of that righteousness. And so they came to trust, not in the God who is the author of all giftedness and all wealth and all blessings, but they came to trust in their own riches. Chapter 8, verse 14, sort of alongside this. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. And so I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. Israel had entrusted herself to her own strength to her own military prowess, to her own wisdom, and had forsaken the Lord God. Chapter 6, verse 1, and then through verse 4, and this this one's dicey. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers and as the spring rains that water the earth. Sounds like repentance, doesn't it? Listen to what God says in verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Here today, gone tomorrow. What was Israel doing? Israel was trusting her own religious practices. Israel was trusting her religious activity. It looks on the outside like she's turning back. But in point of fact, rather than trusting God, she is trusting, if you will, her own repentance. She's trusting her own religious practices and activities. Talk about this in, gosh, any setting I can find to talk about it, how dangerous it is for us as Christians to forget how easy it is for us to forget and how dangerous it is when we forget that our religious practices are not ends in themselves. There is a, I just said this Friday at the refuge, there is a truth content to the Christian faith. The truth matters. But understand me when I say this. 
It isn't the truth that saves you. It is a Savior who saves you. The truth points to the person. It describes the person who is the Savior. And in so many subtle ways, we make truth the Savior. There's this raging controversy. It's raged for almost 500 years about this doctrine of justification by faith alone. I believe it. I believe the Scriptures teach it. But I want to say to you, I am not saved by a right apprehension of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. I am saved by Christ through a faith imperfectly understood, imperfectly apprehended, and imperfectly exercised. I've said this to you before. Does justification by faith alone matter? You bet it does. Does a doctrine of the Trinity matter? You bet it does. The Trinity differentiates and distinguishes Christianity from everything else. These things matter. But you understand what I mean? It isn't these things that save me. It is the God of whom these things are descriptions who saves me. Same with the moral code. Is there a moral code? You bet there's a moral code. Why is there a moral code? Because God is inherently, intrinsically good and righteous and just. And that gets expressed in the world that he's made and the law that he gives for his people. But it's not the moral code that saves you. It is the just, righteous, compassionate God whose character is expressed in the moral code who saves you. And then there's the whole matter of experience. Is there an experiential reality to the Christian life? Yes, there is. And there is because there is experience in the Godhead. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And they love loving each other. And the Holy Spirit loves watching the Father and Son love each other. And He's both the fruit and the participant in the love which the Father and the Son have for each other. And let me tell you, their experience of joy is as infinite, eternal, and unchangeable as everything else about God. But it isn't an experience that saves you. It's not some religious experience. It is the God of heaven and earth who saves you. And Israel had abandoned the God of heaven and earth, becoming self-satisfied in her religious practices. And then last, they entrusted themselves to their pleasures, and this one... This one bites. This one hooks deep. Hosea 4, 17 and 18. Ephraim is joined to idols. Ugh. Leave him alone. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him go. Let him have his way. Give him the rope that he wants. Verse 18. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. What's being described here is Ephraim's insatiable, insatiable, Appetite for pleasure. 
And there is a calculus to this. And if we were honest, if we were honest, if God would grant us just a nanosecond of true honesty, every one of us in this room would acknowledge that this calculus is really true. Ephraim has an insatiable appetite for pleasure. And I could spend another hour talking about pleasure and the fact that desire and pleasure is the engine that drives your existence and that is designed to drive you in the direction of God himself. Ephraim has an insatiable appetite for pleasure and when Ephraim has consumed all of the wine that there is to consume, this metaphor for indulging yourself in whatever your heart desires and whatever your eye sees to consume, you get to the end of the consumption and the desire is still there, the appetite is still there, and because this hasn't satisfied it, you transfer the allegiance just over to something else. When the wine is all gone, you go a-whoring after something else to fill up to fill up the black hole of desire in your soul that's the calculus of idolatry ultimately it leads to bankruptcy so israel The northern ten tribes and Judah tragically is right behind. They have entrusted themselves to all of these things. And what makes idolatry so tragic, so tragic, what makes idolatry so obviously foolish is these two things that are characteristics of it. Idolatry is trusting something that cannot save and loving what cannot love in return. And what you have portrayed in this book of Hosea is a relentless lover who throughout this book makes these promises, repeats these promises as he does at the end of chapter 1. It's so jarring. You know, chapter 1, it sounds like there's no hope that God is going to unleash His fury. No mercy. Not my people. And yet, verse 10. Here is verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. You know what Jezreel means? The Lord plants. And what is the Lord going to plant? He's going to plant. You knew it was coming, didn't you? He is going to plant the one head into whose embrace he himself will gather all of his people, all of those whom he loves, that they might trust him 
and that they might know great joy in him. What is it that connects all of this and ties all of this together? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody murmured it right out here when I said, you know where this is going. So what is idolatry? Idolatry is trusting what cannot save you. It is loving what cannot love you in return. And all of us, every moment of every day, are sorely tempted to turn away from the one head. But thanks be to God, the one head loves his people relentlessly with the love which he knows within himself. And because of that love, draws his people back to himself. Let's pray together. Lord, please help us. Please help us as a church. Please help us as a nation in the midst of this nation. Please help your people throughout the world, a nation in the midst of the nations. But Lord, especially help us in this particular place to examine ourselves and ask ourselves the hard question, what do I trust and what do I love really and truly? And would you, Lord, help us to see these things? And would you give us grace to turn away from them, these gods that cannot save, these pleasures that cannot love, Would you give us grace to turn away from them and turn back to Jesus, the one head who has made himself king over us for his glory and for our good. Lord, help us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me encourage you to stand with me as we sing together number 580. Lead on, O King Eternal.